Before any major event, there's a rehearsal. Members of a wedding party are told where to stand and when to walk. Musicians and dancers practice in empty theaters. And if you're NASA and headed to the moon in 1969, you send Apollo 10 to do everything but land. Look at, the, look at the Earth. Look at the Earth. Oh, gee, look at the Earth, John. Oh, my God. Can't believe it. It's just, that's beautiful. John, we just had Earth rise. Fantastic. Hello, Houston, Houston. This is Snoopy. We is going. We is down among them, Charlie. Oh, Charlie, we just saw Earth rise, and it's got to be magnificent. Welcome to Liftoff from Relay FM. We're marking the 50th anniversary of each crewed Apollo flight, and today we're talking about Apollo 10. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace and ExpressVPN. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Stephen Hackett. Hey there, Jason. How are you? Uh, doing great. It's exciting. Another Apollo mission, and I say we just uh, get right to it. Let's do it. There's a lot to talk about. Um, let's start with the crew. How about that? The crew of Apollo 10, the three gentlemen who will be going so close and yet so far up on the moon. That sounds good. Uh, up first, we have Commander Tom Stafford. Like many astronauts of his generation, a Naval Academy graduate and Air Force test pilot. He was one of the new nine astronauts in 1962. So we spoke about that way back when we were doing our Mercury and Gemini episode, sort of the second class of astronauts. Uh, Stafford was in there. He first flew in Gemini 6A, which was the crewed rendezvous mission with Gemini 7 with Wally Shira. That's where they played uh, harmonica Christmas music, if you remember. Mm. And then flew again uh, shortly thereafter on Gemini 9A with Eugene Cernan. So by the time Apollo 10 came around, Stafford had quite a few miles uh, on his belt. Yeah, and I'd already flown with uh, Gene Cernan, who is also on this mission. But first, let me tell you about John Young, the command module pilot and... Uh, Almost certainly the first pick in everyone's astronaut draft whenever that yes. actually happens. Oh, yeah. He had a Bachelor of Sciences from Georgia Tech, and then he went into the Navy. He served on a destroyer. He was a helicopter pilot. Then he was a fighter pilot. And then finally, he was a test pilot and then was selected as part of the new nine, just as Stafford was in 1962, that second wave of astronaut choices. He flew on Gemini 3 with Gus Grissom. And I mentioned uh, his Navy career. He and Tom Stafford were actually shipmates on the battleship Missouri when they were in the Navy. Navy, And then uh, he went on to other uh, great stuff in NASA that we'll detail at the end. And then we have lunar module pilot Gene Cernan. So like you said, it flew with Stafford on Gemini 9A. Uh, he had a Bachelor of Science degree from Purdue, uh, then enter entered the Navy, was stationed on a destroyer then became an aviator and fighter pilot and uh, became an astronaut in 1963 as part of the third group of astronauts. So I guess by the third group, they, they don't get a name passed. Well, they did have a name, but it's not a name that they liked. They were the final 14. <laughs> <laughs> you, don't, you don't get a glamorous name. <laughs> Too many astronauts. Get out of here. No more astronauts. Yeah. So Apollo 10 was a very seasoned crew, maybe the most seasoned Apollo crew up to this point. Uh, yeah. A, a lot of expertise here on this flight. They are also the only Apollo crew to get a second Apollo mission. That's right. Uh, John Young on Apollo 16, Gene Cernan on Apollo 17, and Stafford on Apollo Soyuz. And as of this recording in May of 2019, uh, Tom Stafford is still with us. So let's get into the mission a little bit. Mm-hmm. Apollo 10 was intended to be the first use of the lunar module in lunar orbit, 
again, as a test, as a dress rehearsal before landing on the next mission. But remember, we spoke about Apollo 9, and there was – between 8, 9, and 10, there was a lot of shuffling. And b- before the success of Apollo 9, where the lunar module went into low Earth orbit, NASA Administrator Thomas Paine thought that maybe sending astronauts on this mission was too dangerous. Maybe it should be an uncrewed flight. But the reality is too many parts of these spacecraft were designed for astronauts to control. It would just take too much time to make them ready for – uh, remote control like like you would see you know earlier in those Apollo missions yeah and the, uh, the so the plan was up for debate after the success of Apollo 9 um, there was brief consideration it's one of those moments where they're like after Apollo 9 everybody's looking at each other and they're like should we just land on the moon now? <laughs> there were a lot of issues with that, including a bunch of stuff that they felt they still needed to test that hadn't been sufficiently tested with just flying the limb in um, in Earth orbit. And also, although they kept they kept lightening the limbs on the assembly line because they were still too heavy. And the limb that was up for Apollo 10 was actually heavier than the one being built for Apollo 11 because they were so worried about the safety margins and right. returnability given the weight of the landers. So they had taken some more stuff off. They'd shaved more weight off on the next limb up. And so they said, OK, we need to do tests. We've got this limb here that's not really qualified to land because it's a little more heavy than we'd like. So let's just do this rather than uh, jumping ahead. Also, the Apollo 10 crew hadn't actually trained for a landing, so they would have had to um move the crews around because they were not planning to land. So they didn't train for the actual landing. They knew the vehicle, but they didn't know about landing. Whereas Neil Armstrong, for example, had been spending lots and lots of time in the limb, uh, the limb simulator, which is a thing that we'll describe next time uh, when we talk about Apollo 11, I think, and is a ridiculous contraption. It's a very frightening piece of hardware. So, so then the, the whole thing's unraveling. You're moving people between crews and all of that. And they said, no, let's just go ahead with this. Um, and we'll we'll take the limb to the moon, but we're not going to try to land. I think that makes a ton of sense. And then you factor in that flight directors just felt like they needed more data. So tracking and communicating two separate spacecraft while at the moon had never been done before. They had done it clearly in low Earth orbit, including with those Gemini missions that two of these crew members were a part of, and then, of course, with Apollo 9. But Apollo 8 was just the command service module. They hadn't needed to track and communicate with two spacecraft then. And that was something that needed to be done. And undocking and rendezvousing in lunar orbit had also never been done. Remember, we spoke about early in these Apollo episodes, there were kind of competing plans. And this idea to take two craft and do a lunar orbit rendezvous was the riskier of the two plans, but ultimately the one that that came out on top. But that needed to be practiced as well. You don't want to land on the moon for the first time and then not be able to dock and get that crew back. You, you want to make sure that's all settled first. So Apollo 10 was set to go forward. Lunar dynamics, the, the orbital dynamics of the moon, are different from Earth. So even though they had had a limb floating around in Earth orbit, lunar orbit is different. The mass of the moon, the gravity of the moon is different. And let's not even mention something, a delightful thing called mass cons, which is short for mass concentrations. Uh, The moon is lumpy, in some cases really lumpy, where it's got very uh, uh, concentrated heavy items in parts of the moon's uh, body and in not in other parts. And what that means is that the gravitational field around the moon is also lumpy. There are parts of it that experience more gravity 
than other parts of it. And what that means is when you put a spacecraft around the moon, often the spacecraft will not fly quite where you expect if you use an approximation of the moon. And one of the things that they could do with Apollo 10 was fly uh, around the moon more and make more measurements so they would be more assured about the mass cons so that they could be sure that they were not going to make a miscalculation that could be fatal to a crew attempting a landing. A lot of these missions were about testing individual components. And to skip over some of the most important ones and go straight to a landing, like I, I see why that plan just didn't didn't work for them. Yeah, and then and then the razor sharp margins of we we we're not entirely sure about the gravitational field. We're not entirely sure about the uh, weight of the lander. We've never really done all of these things. Like, yeah, it makes sense that they would that they would wait. Absolutely. And as a result, uh, they did something else that was pretty funny, which is they made sure for weight reasons, but also possibly for psychological reasons, they made sure that the f- uh, fuel in the lem was not full. Uh, it wasn't fueled to the top. Now, that's good because it kept the weight down. It also discouraged the crew from actually attempting getting down low and being like, well, why don't we just go and land on the moon right now? Why don't we do it? Um, <laughs> and there there are conflicting stories about this. There are conflicting stories about whether they really did it because they were concerned about somebody uh, disobeying orders and going down to the lunar surface or somebody being tempted to give an order like that. Um, but there are also stories that say, while that's true, they actually did leave enough fuel that they probably could have landed and probably could have returned because they wanted a safety margin in general for the LEM. So it's kind of unclear, but I think it strikes me as being extremely unlikely that anyone would legitimately expect these career military guys to get to that point and basically ignore NASA and go ahead and land on the moon. Yeah, I agree. But we'll we'll come back to that. Yeah, we'll we'll make it back to that debate. Let me tell you about our first sponsor. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain name, using award-winning templates, and more. So think about a project you may want to build. Maybe it includes an online store, or maybe a portfolio, or maybe you're a writer and you want to start a blog. Where Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do all of those things. And there's nothing to install. There's no patches to worry about. No upgrades are needed. You don't have to worry about that kind of stuff because Squarespace has got it covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. Their system allows you to quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. And all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. I had a situation a couple of weeks ago where I needed to deal with a web server. And before I knew it, I was in the command line and asking a friend for help. And I just had that thought of like Squarespace makes all this easy. I don't have to worry about this kind of stuff because everything is in the browser, in their editor. So it's very easy to make changes to your site. You don't have to worry about becoming some sort of web programmer. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com slash liftoff. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for this show. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Squarespace. Make your next move. Make your next website. All right, let's get to the mission. Um, Apollo 10, with a fully stacked Saturn V, lifted off from 
the Cape on May 18, 1969. CSM 106, nicknamed Charlie Brown, and Lem 4, Snoopy. These are named, obviously, after characters from the Peanuts comic strip by Charles Schultz, which is adorable. It's really good. It's a much better name than Spider. Come on. Mm -hmm. Less creepy. Snoopy. The launch was from Launch Complex 39B. Actually, the first launch from that pad at Kennedy Space Center. 39B is still there, still in use. It is currently being retrofitted for the upcoming SLS rocket when it flies at some Sometime. point in hmm. the future eventually yeah not that ep- not this episode <laughs> you said when you said when that's yeah when optimistic good job <laughs> if <clears throat> uh ascent was marred by some pogo oh no uh, these are the up up and down vibrations uh in both the second and third stages uh this is previous saturn launches had also had some uh had some pogo it's not good um, it's unpleasant, but uh, the spacecraft did end up where it was supposed to in low Earth orbit. They orbited the Earth one and a half times, and then it was time to burn for the moon. 25 minutes after the TLI burn or translunar injection burn, the command service module separated, swung around to pick up the limb. So uh, Charlie Brown went back for his friend Snoopy. Yep, pull, pull Snoopy out of the can. That's mm-hmm. great. <laughs> uh, the docking was shown live on television in color, making Apollo 10 host to the first live color TV transmissions from space. Uh, Stan, uh, Houston, uh, you're looking good. We can see the uh, markings in the rendezvous with it. It looks like you just stopped. Are we going to capture? Yeah, looks like it. Roger. This is John Young. Yeah, I'm going to move two previous Gemini missions at the controls. We can read, read the uh, numbers on the lamb right, uh, docking window. Those are gradations etched in the window. Well, we're there. Got two grades. Roger. You saw the docket, Charlie. We didn't get any master alarm. Everything looks stunned. Roger. Didn't look like there was any, uh, hardly any, uh, after doc, post-docking of oscillation. In the three-day trip to the moon, only one of the four possible mid-course corrections were needed. So in previous Apollo missions, the Pogo created issues with motor shutting down early, and Apollo 10 basically was right right up the, the middle. Stafford, Young, and Cernan had basically threaded the needle on their trajectory to the moon. Yeah, and that, that also means that those three days were even less interesting than they were already going to be, because they only had to do one thing, yeah. which was the single mid-course correction, uh-huh. and that was I, it. I was, I've been reading through a lot of the transcripts, and at some point, they're offered like a 15-hour sleep period. It's like, that's that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, well, they they you know they were going to need it, but also there's nothing to do. They're <laughs> You're just, just hanging out. Going to the moon. That's it. Uh, once they got there, and uh, and they reached lunar orbit. Obviously, they do the thing that we talked about uh, several times here. Uh, definitely happened in the previous mission around the moon. You fire off your your engines to enter lunar orbit. That happens while you're on the far side of the moon. And then you come around and now you're in a nice lunar orbit, which is great. And so what do you do to celebrate? You send uh, 29 more minutes of color television uh, to uh, the people back on Earth. And there's nothing better than color TV in 1969. Everybody loves it. And then you show them the lunar surface, which is almost <laughs> entirely gray. So I hadn't thought of that. That's that's really funny. <laughs> uh, so they, I, I, if you talk to astronauts, they'll say, well, there's some 
that might be described as brown yeah. <laughs> mixed in with the gray. It's like, oh boy, that's pretty, pretty exciting. Pretty monotone. Yeah. Though. So, but the crew is standing there. You know, they're shooting out a out a window and they're describing mm-hmm. different features of the moon as they're panning and zooming. Uh, sure. A, and moving around for about half an hour. In color. Stafford and Cernan entered the limb to prepare for undocking, scheduled for the 12th lunar orbit. Uh, it was then discovered that the limb had moved out of alignment with the command service module by three and a half degrees. And there was concern that separating the two spacecraft might shear off some of the latching pins, which basically held the spacecraft together when docking. And if those were bent over, it could cause issues when it was time to redock. And remember, this is something they're testing because they're Apollo 10. This is something that's got to go well in future missions. However, Mission Control reported back that as long as the misalignment was less than six degrees, there would be no problem. So they move forward. I love it when they have an answer like that, where they're like, we know what the variance on this uh, equipment is, and it's, you're within it, so it's fine. Um, and and so they did it. Snoopy undocked from Charlie Brown. Uh, it's adorable. Still, still great. Uh, and they slowly separated. The crew deployed the landing legs. They're little explosive bolts that go off, and then they're spring-loaded, and they whoop, the landing legs go out so they can <laughs> totally land on the moon. Don't land on the moon, guys. You're not supposed to land on the moon. But they, they tested that part of it. They're trying to do this full run-through. They start checking out all of the different lunar module systems. Um, Young is in the command module, and he is visually inspecting the LEM to make sure it looks good from the outside. So they check all that stuff out. The limb's descent engine was then fired for 27.4 seconds, and they used 10% thrust, and then 40% thrust once they're a little bit further away from the command service module. The limb then flew over landing site two, the Sea of Tranquility, which, of course, Apollo 11 would make infamous just two months later. And during this run, the limb landing radar is tested for altitude functioning. So they're checking out the limb, checking out its systems. Why is it infamous? Isn't it famous? Shouldn't it be like, are people angry at the Sea of Tranquility? It's more than famous. So what's more meta-famous, mega-famous? Super famous. Also, you mentioned the 10% thrust and then the 40% thrust. That was actually the biggest engineering challenge of the LEM engine was that unlike most of these rocket engines, which were basically on and off, uh, because this was something that had to land and it needed to have a almost like a a, a, a jet pilot kind of control because they were going to need to land on the surface, it needed to have a throttle. And a throttleable rocket engine is a lot harder than a on and off light this candle kind of engine. So it's really important in this, as well as the previous test of the LEM, to get those engines tested because they were unlike uh, rocket engines that had been used before. Uh, anyway, they, they did, after firing it and uh, slowing down their, their speed, which meant that they came lower and lower and lower, because that's what you do. You slow down and you go lower in orbit. I think that's it. Or do you speed up and go lower? I don't know. Di- orbital dynamics are hard. They got down to about 47,000 feet above the lunar surface, which is not bad. That's like, um, you know, that's that's just above like airplane height yeah. here it's on Earth. At- after going to the moon, forty-seven thousand feet is nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's right there. They were they were uh, they were pretty close. When the crew prepared to rendezvous back with the command service module on its fourteenth rotation of the moon, their spidery but not creepily named spacecraft began to <laughs> rapidly roll while making small pitch and yaw rate changes. Yeah, so the limp is picking up speed and its spin. Uh, Cernan uh, radio is a phrase that we are not going to repeat on this podcast back to Houston <laughs> on a channel that was open to the public. Uh, later, he would say, I saw the lunar horizon go by seven or eight times in 10 seconds. That's a hair raising experience. It gives me flashbacks of the Agena. Mm-hmm. Cernan saying some bad words here, I feel is completely 
understandable. Like I think anyone would in that situation or almost anyone, I guess yeah. not Neil Armstrong did it in, in his Gemini mission, but it's understandable. From yeah, our perspective. yeah. Unfortunately, it was a public relations problem for NASA. There were a bunch of stories that were written about it. There was a headline that said the air turns blue as astronauts, astronauts blow their cool image. And a high profile minister actually demanded a public a policy, which NASA made Gene Cernan provide. Yikes. <laughs> I wonder if they told him about that once he landed. Probably. Yeah. You land your hand in an envelope with an apology in it. Yeah. Uh, the public, though, didn't seem super phased about it for all the, the sort of backlash that was visible. Letters received by NASA. Again, this is 1969. I guess now it'd be tweets. Uh, but these letters were generally supportive of the crew's language. Opinions ran 25 to 1 in favor of letting the crew speak freely. Now, at this point, Stafford jettisoned the descent stage of the LEM. Uh, after about eight seconds, they wrestled that ascent stage under control, and finally they radioed mission control and didn't use profanities, but did say, we've got all our marbles. Super fast thinking on Stafford's part to, to mm-hmm. save the limb here. That's what these guys trained for, right? They're trained to, to make these quick decisions in emergencies. Yeah, and recover from a, a, a an error, which turned out to be their own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it did turn out to be human error. Stafford and Cernan had a switch for the primary guidance and navigation system in the wrong position in the limb, causing the spacecraft to believe it was facing the wrong direction. Yeah, I think this is this example of, if I'm not mistaken, where um, both of them flipped the switch, which yeah. led it where they, you know, they and that, that the number of switches flipped in an Apollo mission is enormous, but this was a case where they both flipped a switch and that left it in the wrong place. And so then the spacecraft was very, uh, very confused about that. Right. It's in position A, you know, say, let's just say Cernan flips it to B and then Stafford comes back later and says, oh, I need to flip the switch, doesn't recognize it's in the wrong position and then it's back where it began. It's It's an understandable mistake. So Snoopy got five and a half hours to hang around in uh, in lunar orbit uh, and get within 40 some odd thousand feet of the surface, which is, uh, as they said in the little audio clip we played at the beginning, they're, they're down among them. Very exciting. <laughs> uh, but it was time to go home. And so after those five and a half hours, Snoopy redocked with Charlie Brown. No issues with the link up, with the bolts, anything like that, it all worked fine. And Stafford radioed back. Snoopy and Charlie Brown are hugging each other. It's so so good. Such good spacecraft names. Yeah, it's it's great. But um, with the lunar landing in history waiting in the wings, NASA decided that they wanted the names for the command and lunar modules to be more dignified. And therefore, they were more dignified, as we'll see next time. Eagle and Columbia, a little more dig- dignified than Snoopy and Charlie Brown. On May 26th, Apollo 10 splashed down in the Pacific Ocean after hitting the Earth's atmosphere at a record speed of 24,791 miles per hour. Apollo 10 was hailed a success. NASA was ready to go to the moon and close that 47,000-foot gap to the surface. Hooray! They're home. They're heroes. It's great. Uh, But there's more. There are some strange things about this vision that we're going to need to talk about, and we will do so uh, after our next sponsor break. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Sometimes cybercrime seems like something from the movies because it's hard to imagine that someone would try to get hold of your information. But stealing information from public Wi-Fi is a pretty easy way for bad people to make money, and it does happen to normal people like, like me and like you. If you leave your internet connection unencrypted, 
things like credit card numbers and browsing uh, data, all this stuff could become vulnerable. But there's something that you can do to protect yourself online. You can start using ExpressVPN. Not today or sometime next week or the trip after next, but you can start today. ExpressVPN works by securing and anonymizing your internet browsing. It encrypts your data and hides your public IP address with easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of your device. You can turn ExpressVPN protection on with just one click, and then you're free to safely surf on public Wi-Fi without being snooped on or having your personal data stolen. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar, and it even comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. I use ExpressVPN anytime I'm not on my home network. So if I go out to the coffee shop to work or I'm traveling, which I have a trip coming up in just two weeks, if I'm using Wi-Fi on an iOS device or on my Mac in an airport or a hotel or an Airbnb, you better believe that I have ExpressVPN turned on for that peace of mind, knowing that my data is safe. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection I have. If you ever use public Wi-Fi and you want to keep the bad guys away from your data, check out ExpressVPN. Head on over to expressvpn.com liftoff to learn more. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com liftoff. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com liftoff for three months free with a one-year package. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of Liftoff and all of Relay FM. Okay, we promised to talk about some weird Apollo 10 things. And like, can we just start with the poop? I think we have to start with the poop. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So six days into Apollo 10, we hear, uh, in, and it's in the transcripts. We don't hear it actually because it's only in the transcripts. I couldn't find any audio of this anywhere. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Stafford says, who did it? And Young replies, who did what? And Gene Cernan says, where did that come from? <laughs> As the ground was about to ask the crew what was going on, Stafford clued them in saying, this is going to quote, give me a napkin quick. There's a turd floating through the air. As all three men continue to deny being its creator. The life of an astronaut is not always glamorous. Let's just say it. They are pooping in a bag that is taped to their butt. <laughs> and then they close it. And, and, they, and they wipe with a with a little wipes that are attached, and they put those in the bag, and then they see, close it, and theoretically it's sealed. Which I think is why everybody denied being the owner of this is because what happened is some the bag a bag came unsealed. That's clearly what happened here. Um, but because there is no gravity, it was just uh, floating around, and then somebody spotted it moseying along and said, "I need to get that out of the air right now." Oh boy, this actually was redacted from early transcripts and then eventually showed up. And like you said, uh, there's, there's no audio of this that we could find. Uh, so, yeah. uh, I guess they wanted to, to clean it up. There is one other mystery that we should discuss though. And it's space music. The crew claims to have heard weird sounds over their headset, the weird space music. And, um, it, it's a vast overstatement. Uh, one of the astronauts tries to explain what it sounds like as you will hear in this clip and it music even sounds outer spacey didn't it you hear that that whistling sound yeah. Wait, you're... yeah it sounds like uh you know outer space time music 
You don't want LGC. The whistling sound was nothing more than interference between the radios on the command and lunar modules. In fact, Apollo 11 astronaut Michael Collins wrote about the phenomenon in his book, Carrying the Fire, saying that the sound would have startled him had he not been warned by NASA technicians about it beforehand. Well, I guess the warning wasn't given to the Apollo 10 crew because they were puzzled by it in the transcripts, and uh, you can hear it in the audio, but it was just a moment... uh, that happened and it didn't cause any other issues uh, other than, you know, then all the conspiracy theorists come out on the internet and say, ah, what was the secret alien space Mm -hmm. music that they heard, uh, which is ridiculous. I'm going to say it's not aliens. No, it's never aliens. It's (laughs) never, ever aliens. Uh, So let's circle back to the conversation about Apollo 10 and its crew in the limb and their ability or desire to land on the moon. Let's get some facts straight. First, Apollo 10's limb weighed a fueled... Let's see, fueled 30,735 pounds, so 30,000 pounds, give or take. Apollo 11's fueled 33,000 pounds. Now, the 10 LEM was heavier by itself, but because it didn't have as much fuel as the Apollo 11 one, it was lighter when they launched it. And uh, specifically, this is the fuel in the ascent module, which, of course, you don't need if you're not going to land because you don't need to take off. Yeah. Uh, In short, the ascent module basically just didn't have enough fuel to guarantee it could make it back into rendezvous orbit with the CSM from the surface. And again, that's a critical step if you want to come home. (laughs) Critical. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Craig Nelson wrote in his book, Rocket Men, that NASA took special precautions to ensure that Stafford and Cernan wouldn't attempt it. Now, again... Reports vary vary here, but uh, Nelson quotes Cernan as saying, a lot of people thought about the kind of people we were. Don't give those guys an opportunity to land because they might. So the ascent module, the part we lifted off, the lunar surface with was short-fueled, the fuel tanks weren't full. So had we literally tried to land on the moon, we couldn't have gotten off. Hmm. Right? Like, hmm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the the record really backs up this. It's a weird, it's, it's weird. It's super weird. And and how serious Cernan was in these comments, totally up to debate, to your point. Some believe that the lunar module could have actually made it back to the correct altitude and the fuel difference was all in the safety margin. Some argue that NASA would have been actually irresponsible to leave the crew stranded on the surface if something had gone wrong and they were forced to land. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, And then there's the, the crew themselves. As I said earlier, these are test pilots. Are they going to go all this way and then be a, like a cowboy, a space cowboy, a moon cowboy, and and go ahead and land on the moon. I, I just, I don't believe it. I don't either. I'm sure that part of them wanted to be first, but I think they deeply respected the job that they had been sent there to do. And I, I don't think it was ever a, a real temptation for these guys. Yeah, I agree. I, it's a weird story. I think, I think it was all about the weight and uh, the balance of the spacecraft and had nothing to do with the temperament of the people and the crew. But, um, who knows? Who knows? It's a good story to tell, even if I'm not 
uh, sure that it actually happened. We should talk about where uh, where are they now? What what happened afterward? And okay. Let's start with Charlie Brown. Um, Charlie Brown is at the Science Museum in London. So if you're in London, you can see Charlie Brown. It's great. I saw it last summer. Now, if you're in um, in an unknown heliocentric orbit, you can see Snoopy. <laughs> uh, it is the only flown lunar module that has not been destroyed. Most of them were either burned up in the Earth's atmosphere or smashed into the lunar surface. But Snoopy was ejected and is in an, a solar orbit, a heliocentric orbit. There have been attempts to find it, but it's basically impossible. It's so small that, it, uh, that, that all of the attempts that have been made have failed. So Snoopy is out there somewhere. Keep your eyes to the skies, I guess. <laughs> Let's talk about the crew. Uh, Tom Stafford ended up replacing Alan Shepard as chief of the astronaut office in, in the early 1970s. He also was the commander of the Apollo Soyuz test project in 1975, as you mentioned, something that we're going to talk about when we wrap up the Apollo missions. He took over command of the Air Force Flight Test Center at Edwards Air Force Base and then was promoted to the deputy chief of staff of R&D for the Air Force. He retired in 1979, so a decade after his flight on Apollo 10, doing things like being on corporate boards and NASA advisory panels. He wrote an autobiography called uh, We Have Capture. And as of this recording in May of 2019, he is 88 years old, living in his home state of Oklahoma. John Young ended up being the commander of Apollo 16. Remember, he, he was watching as other people flew the limb, but he took three moonwalks. He's the ninth person to walk on the surface of the moon. Um, that's just the beginning, believe it or not. He went into the astronaut office. He worked on the space shuttle uh, and planning that starting in 1973. He was the commander of STS-1, the very first space shuttle flight in 1981. He was the commander of STS-9, the first space lab module flight of the shuttle in 1983. And he was actually scheduled to be the commander of STS-61 in 1986. That was a post-Challenger flight that was delayed after the Challenger accident. He was openly critical of NASA in the aftermath of Challenger, and he was then reassigned to Johnson Space Center. It's generally thought that this is because he was critical of how NASA handled the Challenger, um, and he never flew again. He retired in 2004, wrote an, his own autobiography. Everybody who's an Apollo astronaut wrote a book. That's just something you need to know. Uh, his was Forever Young, and he died in January of 2018 at the age of 87. Gene Cernan went on to serve as the commander of Apollo 17. He had three EVAs, including uh, 22 miles, 35 kilometers of driving in the lunar rover, collecting 75 pounds of moon rocks. Uh, he drove the rover at 11.2 miles an hour, which means Gene Cernan holds the record for lunar speed driving. Pretty awesome record. Uh, and of course, it still stands today. On Apollo 17, he was last into the lunar module, meaning that as of, as of this recording, Gene Cernan is the last human being to stand on the lunar surface. He retired from the Navy in 1976 and went into private business. He, too, wrote a book called The Last Man on the Moon. It was made into a documentary in 2014, and he died in January 2017 at the age of 82. And that's it. Uh, Apollo 11 is next. In July, we're going to talk about... I, I wonder how... I, it's a story that's been told so many times. I, I uh, it, That'll be an interesting challenge for us to tell it in our, in, our own, uh, in our own way. And a lot of people are going to be talking about it in July. But we will be talking about Apollo 11 for our next one of these 
uh, come July. But we will also be back in a fortnight to talk about so much stuff. I think we're doing that episode in person, you and I, Stephen. We are. We will be together in California. Yeah. So we'll we'll get caught up on all of the many things that have been going on in space for the last month or so at that point. Um, but uh, but that wraps up our coverage of Apollo 10, which is a, a, a sort of forgotten mission in a lot of ways, but there's a lot of fun stuff in there. Absolutely. If you want to learn a, a whole lot more about Apollo 10, we have a bunch of links for you in the show notes. You can find those online as always. Uh, this time at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 99. While you're there, you can uh, follow a link to our Tumblr where we post uh, links and stories in between episodes. You can send us an email with feedback or follow-up, or you can find us on Twitter. Jason is there as Snell, and you can find me on Twitter as ISMH. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.